Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the best space history movie ever made, the uh, 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Chris Henry of the EAA Aviation Museum in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And uh, joining us again today, uh, again, we're very lucky to have... uh, um, Shuttle commander, four-time uh, crew member, or four-time uh, mission uh, 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 veteran, Charlie Precord with us. Uh, Charlie, thank you again so much for, for coming on with us. My pleasure, Chris. Good to be talking to you guys. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's interesting in light of what you were talking about uh, in yesterday's episode where we were talking about uh, closing distances and, and moving at like 0.1 feet per second. Uh, watching this particular minute where uh, Jack Schweigert is... Uh, 100 feet out and accelerating. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, uh, they did dock at a higher speed in Apollo. The vehicles were smaller. They had a little more structural margin, and they had systems that were uh, more in their infancy of design, and so they they actually wanted that speed to ensure latching. But with uh, evolution of time, our docking mechanism was actually designed by the Russians for Apollo Soyuz and then evolved for shuttle and it was uh, not a probe and drogue like uh, like Apollo used it was a you know pedal uh, several pedals that overlap and, and had latches on them so it's just a different design point and our vehicles were very much heavier and so we had to fly in slower yeah, the, uh, the mission that followed this one, Apollo 14, they actually had to back up and generally slam into the lunar mm-hmm. module to get to, the To get the it catches. to latch. Yeah. And the Soyuz is that way, too. It uses a probe and drogue, and they come in much faster. I trained, I didn't fly the Soyuz, but I trained in their simulator to do their docking techniques. So I had a, a method of, in the interface between us and the Russians, we would compare operational notes. And uh, I actually sat on the op... Uh, participated in the accident investigation from when they had a progress vehicle, if you might recall, uh, collided with the Mir and, and um, caused a pressure leak while Mike Full was aboard. I was part of the accident investigation and as having been a shuttle guy that flew a couple of dockings already by that time I was invited by the Russians to go over and fly their simulator and, and give my input on, on how they do it. And they do fly a faster speed with the probe and drogue for the Soyuz just like they did in Apollo. It reminds me of when, when I was a kid, uh, I, we, had a, we had a house in upstate New York, and uh, to get into our garage, we had a, a cement lip over the front of our garage, and to get the car in, you had to kind of just <laughs> scoot, scoot it over the bump, and I just keep thinking this is kind of like the bump in my old garage. It, it is in a way, you overcoming that friction, yep, exactly. Yeah. Um, based on, uh, you know, in doing, in doing the docking with Mir, how much did that affect the design of, uh, of the PMAs, the, the, the adapters on, uh, on the ISS, uh, from your experiences with docking with Mir? It had a, a large role in, in the space station design, not just for docking, but all facets of ISS took advantage of lessons uh, between shuttle and Mir. I just mentioned the uh, the progress docking with the loss of pressurization due to the collision. And the dockings and rendezvous procedures were firmed up and solidified without going into too much detail about the causes of that progress collision. 
Uh, suffice it to say that all of that was addressed in the designs for space station. The um, there was a move to to go to a kind of a magnetic adapter for docking uh, on space station, but they uh, chose to go back to the mechanical. But it was an evolved one that took advantage of lessons uh, from shuttle and Mir. So many many parts of what we did with shuttle Mir found their way into improvements on space station. If you look at the issues and failures that we had with Mir, um, we had uh, a lot of different system issues. They have almost been non-existent on the space station, knock on wood. Those who are watching may have noticed that there was a leak in the Soyuz while it's attached to a station. That's really the first issue of its kind, of that level of, of uh, concern that they've had. In, in recent history on the space station. Did the design also affect the uh, the birthing uh, connections? Where, where you yeah, so so the, the shuttle's retired, obviously, so that particular docking technique uh, is, is, is retired with the shuttle. But the birthing uses a, a, a pedal and leaf kind of thing, but it, they're kind of inverted to, uh, to be the pedals are outward so that you actually have a wider diameter for the hatch itself. You don't get the obstructions of the, the pedals that were angled inward on shuttle that that actually narrow the diameter of the passageway. So a lot of things that evolved because of that experience like that to ergonomically, reliability-wise, functionally for space station operations, all those kinds of things were considered. One of the uh, changes in the movie here from, from real life is since they, they were docking these two pressure vessels, uh, is that during this whole docking uh, maneuvers, they were wearing spacesuits. They were wearing pressure suits so that in case there was any kind of a compromise, they, you know, they wouldn't lose the crew at the, at the front hatch. Mm -hmm. um, when you were first attempting uh, docking with Mir, did, did you all have to wear pressure suits? Or? No, we did not. Um, the uh, integrity of the pressure system was checked out very thoroughly prior to, right after arriving on orbit, actually, and, and prior to the crew, you know, doffing their pressure suits, we would make sure that payload bay doors were successfully opened, pressurization system was intact, uh, all of the major subsystems were operating such that there was nothing driving us to, uh, you know, an immediate return home. Everything was looking good, checked out normally. Then we would get out of our suits, and like I said, docking was 42 hours into the mission, so we had 42 hours to make sure everything was stable and the mirror uh, having been on orbit for years you know they were stable and then you know the the safety mitigations to a pressure incident were really borne out by the way we did the docking so interesting question you raised there because if you look what happened with the progress uh, that collided with the mirror we did the shuttle dockings manually, so we were in control of closure rate with the commander having hands on the controls, and we could at any point in time come to a stop and back away. And as I said, the closure rate at contact was, you know, basically 1.2 inches per second of motion. What happened on the progress, which was nearly a disaster, was uh, the Russians, when the wall came down after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Ukrainians were as a former Soviet Union um, you know member their responsibility was for a lot of the avionics on the docking system for the Soyuz and the Mir becoming an independent country they started to raise prices on the avionic uh, costs for each of the vehicles so the Russians thought let's do it the way the Americans do let's just have them dock the progress manually 
And so they asked Vasily Tsibliyev, there was a control post on the station that could get data um, to it from the arriving progress and the crew member in the mirror could be sitting at this control post looking at a video display as if he were sitting in the progress and he could control the progress remotely from the station and so they asked him to fly it in uh, remotely without a lot of automated data just do it visually through the cameras and that was their mistake as they made a jump from totally automated to totally manual without giving Vasily the data that comes from the automated systems uh, and so he had a very very as it came up over the horizon and was approaching him uh, where he took over manually it had a extremely high closure rate but by the time he could recognize it he did not have enough thruster power to slow it down and or to deflect it away from hitting the station. So it punctured the, the spectrum module. And the crew on board, of course, felt the large jarring and, and there was a hiss, a loss of air, and they, they really got to within a very few minutes of having to jump in the Soyuz themselves and abandon the station. So a big lesson learned on a number of fronts in the way you do flight testing of big changes like that on, on how you conduct an operation like that. Um, it all carried over into the way we do space station dockings but from our standpoint when we were doing the shuttle dockings to the mirror we were very confident and comfortable we had a number of, of backup means to control our position and not have to uh, you know it was very 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 low probability we would have a contact issue that would result in a pressurization issue did they use the they came along the velocity vector to get to to get to mirror they actually came in on the negative R-bar, meaning above the station looking down at the Earth, which confounded Vasily Tsibliyev's problem because when it was in the final throes of approach, he was having to deal in the video image, which was from a camera on the nose of the progress, with the Earth motion in the background. So he's looking at himself, if you will, sitting at the control post in the mirror at a camera image of the mirror with the earth in the background and he's watching that image zoom towards him with the earth rotating in the background so if he had been on an R bar he would have been in better better shape he wouldn't have had the distraction of the earth in the background he also would have had the gravity vector helping him slow down as it was he's coming in from above earth is a distraction in the background and it's acceler and the gravity is accelerating him towards their station so just a lot of things that were rushed um, and done while he was on orbit without a lot of training on the ground. They could have uh, made some more incremental steps like allowing him to look at radar data, in other words fly another set of Ukrainian avionics with radar data and let, let the crew see that data as they you know, plan the first hands-on only docking and have the benefit of that data and then wean themselves of that when they got a system perfected. Very interesting evolution in the, the life of, of Mir and then space station. It, it sounds like he didn't get much time for like, did, did, did they simulate this? Did they ever do, did he do sim work? To... There was some sim work both on the ground and in space, but it was with trajectories that were very benign and totally normal. And he was handed a situation where the progress was came up over the horizon um, with a much higher closure rate than he had trained to. Uh, it was just a, you know a, an artifact of a number of things in the way they set up the approach and, uh, and, and the fact that he was on orbit uh, for the first time doing this without a lot of backup data. So yeah, it sounds a little strange when you hear the debrief I'm giving, 
but that's where they, they they gravitated to wanting to rid themselves of of the avionics information the Ukrainians were charging them for, and they moved too fast. It's, it's just stunning, the, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank, thank goodness we're not doing it that way. Uh, one of the, a question I'm speaking as we were talking about sim, uh, simulations. How many? I know this is probably one of those how high is up questions, but how many simulations of uh, of docking with Mir do you think you ran before you actually did it for real? Well, we did it in a number of, of venues. Um, we had uh, simulators that we could use our desktop computers, laptops to at least practice the switchology of uh, different views. Uh, of the trajectory and, and the timing. Uh, and then we also had a standalone rendezvous trainer that was focused on all of the hands, hand-on flying phase. You know, just the, not the autopilot control phase far, far away from the station where we're, we're actually still sitting in the front seats and we're doing automated adjustment, orbit adjustment burns from hundreds and hundreds of miles away and we're closing the orbits of the shuttle and the station. We had a simulator that was focused only on the hands-on flying, that inside of say a thousand feet, and a very high fidelity where we had uh, all of the tools that we would have on orbit and we would uh, train on that a lot. And then we had a, a full fidelity simulator, much like many of our listeners would relate to if I told them it was like an airline simulator. And that one could do the whole mission. Uh, including those faraway burns as well as the hand flying. Uh, and the reason we had a separate one for the hand flying is we wanted to, to not have to take up the big simulator for focusing on that one phase of the flight. But all in all, in a, about a year of preparation prior to going to fly, uh, we were in one of those simulators two or three times a week. The big simulator, we would do four-hour sessions where we'd do the whole evolution from you know, a few hours away, uh, three, four hours away, all the way up to docking. Um, total number of hours, I'd have to think about it, but it was a lot. Okay, yeah, and you, and fortunately, you were, I mean, when you were, when you were up doing these dockings, it, everything worked, but you were also practicing with stuck thrusters and switches that didn't work and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all of those simulators, in one way or another, would prep you for an off-nominal event, you know, like you say, a stuck thruster or a sensor that fails, um, you know, radar goes down, or your laser's not working, or your cameras fail, learning to cope with a lack of some information um, and how you respond to it. Yeah, we would do all all of that stuff over and over and over again. Shuttle was originally designed uh, to be considered as part of, you know, the later, what would originally have been uh, Space Station Freedom or Space Station Alpha. Mm-hmm. And uh, it had the ability to be adapted for connecting to a space station by building that mid-deck uh, airlock and things. How much alteration had to be done to the shuttles to connect with Mir? So we took a space lab module, which had flown many, many times on shuttle, uh, way back to, I think, STS-9 might have been the first one. And the tunnel that goes from the mid-deck back to that module so the crew could conduct experiments in that space lab module was modified to have a T-fitting on it that had a, a, a turn, a 90-degree turn in the tunnel. Part of the tunnel continued to back to the space lab, but then there was an upward turn that we uh, adapted to that tunnel to allow for a connection of a orbiter docking system, which was an, a, a, a mini uh, module, if you will, upon which we overlaid the Russian docking uh, mechanism, the, the 
pedals, the androgynous peripheral docking system, APDS they called it, that evolved from the, the Apollo-Soyuz program. It, it was a mechanism that measured probably three feet in height uh, by the diameter of the of the docking uh, module. Uh, so below that mechanism was a, 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 a tunnel extension that pointed vertically out of the payload bay and on top of that we put the docking mechanism. It was just that addition uh, that we had to had to deal with for uh, shuttle to mirror dockings. From what I understand, the the, uh, uh, mirror, the the mirror side of it had been tested in Russia. Is that, is that correct? Yes. They had originally done a done a physical dock between two. Yes. So uh, so you knew it worked on the ground and then <laughs> work up in space. Was it difficult using that ninety degree turn when you were moving, say, like cargo and stuff? Some some of it was like one of the more uh, challenging devices that we had to replace on the mirror was a, an oxygen generator. It was about as big as a water heater and it was extremely massive in weight and um, and the challenge was once you got it moving you know everybody talks about it being weightless in space but you don't get rid of mass so you can picture you know this massive water heater floating through space and you weigh you know 180 pounds and you get in front of this thing that weighs 300 pounds that's floating and you're going to stop it, right? No, it's Newton's <laughs> law. It's going to push you. So you had to be very careful. We put two people on it, at least one on each end, that would maneuver it at a very slow rate so that we could actually not, you know, pinch somebody's leg between it and a wall while it was moving too fast. And the length of it required very delicate turning in that tunnel to get it up and through the hatches into the mirror. So you just had that strapped down on the mid deck when you were going, or how? Was no, it, it was in the uh, back module, in the space lab module. Okay. It was, it was oh, okay. Tied yes, down back there, yeah. Uh, the first time you were in, uh, you got into uh, Mir as, as as you were you were on that that side of the uh, of the docking system. Do you remember your first impressions when you when you got there? Yeah. So as it was the Christ now that, now that I've remembered it. You're bringing back my memories. It was the Crystal module. Okay. And. Um, and it was a module that had become uh, a storage compartment um, in the mirror. In the way they flew the mirror, it was most often in the shade, and meant that meant it gathered condensation. And as a storage compartment with condensation, it had become abused a little bit, and uh, and so it was kind of noticeable. It had a musty smell, and it had some equipment that was obviously. Uh, lacking in upkeep. Other parts of the station were, were fine uh, and this, there wasn't anything really bad about this either. It was just noticeable that it was uh, it was that kind of compartment you were entering first when you got into the station that it was it was ser it was serving that kind of purpose. It was their closet and um, and, it and it was noticeable. Uh, yeah and it's an interesting, I mean usually when you're picturing on American ships everything is in like white room clean and everything. Yeah. Yeah, well, you have you had two to three people on the mirror, and it was a early vintage space station that turned out to take more human effort to keep it maintained than you had time to conduct experiments, and so it, it was a handful um, keeping it fully up and running, and so uh, the crew time that was available was put to use where it was most productive, and this thing had become a closet, and uh, it served that purpose for them, and, and so that's just kind of the evolution of learning how to live out there, you know. It's it's not a knock on them, it's just how they learned, and yeah. uh, we learned from them, and Space Station is better because of it. 
they did have a they did have a you know well established presence in space uh, you know for long term for, for long term living in space. I mean between Mir and the before that Salyut, all the the different Salyuts, they definitely had an experience base that we we built on. Yeah, coming out of Apollo, it was interesting. They kind of went the route of let's do a station and do long duration in st- in space, and we went to shuttle for doing rapid uh, as rapid as we could multiple jaunts to space with different missions and different objectives and so just kind of interesting after that race to the moon that that's how the two countries uh, went different ways and it wasn't until the wall came down that we put the two together in what was a very logical uh, partnership an orbiting space station that existed with a shuttle for going back and forth with large payload capacity to take big stuff up and big stuff down it really worked nicely um, where it ki- and it kind of became the baseline for the space station design is space station was initially conceived that the shuttle would be around for its entire life and that big parts would be shuttled back and forth and then when Columbia accident happened the agency was challenged to retire shuttle and so we prepositioned large spare parts in anticipation of not having shuttle around for the rest of the space station's life and returning to just using smaller uh, cargo ships and uh, things that we're, we're evolving to now with uh, using the Soyuz capsule and eventually you know, the SpaceX and Boeing capsules uh, as a way to get to and from the station. So uh, that was a big lesson and a change in the way we operated, but it was conceived with the idea that shuttle and station would be together forever based on the Mir experience. It's really stunning how all of these different, I mean, we wound up with a, a synergy that was com- completely unexpected. I mean, that we had yep. built, you know, Apollo Soyuz coming up with a common adapter that kind of got shelved for, yep, for, for 20 than, years almost. Yeah, yeah, 20 years. After Challenger, when the commercial uh, satellite uh, piece was taken away from shuttle and the Air Force moved away from, from, you know, going back to expendable launch vehicles, Shuttle didn't really, and without uh, the funding of, uh, of uh, Space Station Freedom or Space Station Alpha, they Shuttle really didn't have much missions left uh, right. open to it. Right. Um, so we had a we had a shuttle with no place to go, and the uh, the, the Russians had a at a space station with nobody to, vi- to visit them. So it, I right. think it was a, a very nice uh, help <laughs> help for both of us to exactly. to create a new feature. Yeah, we did uh, seven docking missions. Uh, with them in, in uh, the, the flight rate was up we did uh, we did 12 shuttle missions in a 12 month period it was not in a single year but it, it crossed over two calendar years but we were really productive uh, in that particular phase of, of the program with them how, how was uh, how was it learning the, the language when when you were working with... that's kind of like uh, your question about adapting to gravity um, everyone is a little different in their aptitude for language. Um, I grew up with French as a second language and I found learning a third much easier because of that. Others were less aligned with uh, learning a language. They were more interested in the technical. Um, And so what you found was with every crew is you had a mixture of people that included those who had a natural affinity for learning the language and those who didn't. And so our checklist procedures were in both languages where they were required because they were joint operations where they were singular spacecraft operations of course they didn't have bilingual checklist items but 
where we were doing things like rendezvous and docking and cargo transfer and communications between ships, all of that was in bilingual procedures. So you could choose which language you wanted to operate in. But I found it very rewarding because as a NF-15 guy in Germany during the Cold War and studying these guys as my enemy uh, and then suddenly finding myself flying with them, it just it motivated me to learn the language so I could uh, kind of understand them better. It was really rewarding. I know that during the uh, the Apollo Soyuz mission in '75, what the uh, what, what the crews found was that if the uh, if they each spoke each other's language to listen to the other ones talk, it seemed to to work faster. Did you did you rely on any of that method? Um, yeah, no. It, occasionally, we called it runglish. Um, <laughs> it would be a, you know you'd be a mixture of words that you would still either two people would go to Russian or two people would go to English. But there would be mixed words in there um, based oh. on the training and the, the, what, what turned out to be easiest use of, of, um, of communication uh, using different words. I mean, we used a lot of acronyms, right? So it was, it, when I say Runglish, it was a lot of times it was easier to use the Russian word for certain things because it would be an object that we didn't have on the shuttle and we just used the Russian word because everybody knew what it was and, and you'd go with it, right? So it, it was a spectrum of language um, use and application that varied by the proficiency of each crew member, by their you know preference for one language over the other and by what it was we were talking about. And, um, and so it, it was an evolution of of its language of its own, right, in that operation. I, I, I've told you this story offline before, but my uh, one of your crewmates, uh, who was uh, my instructor, uh, Wendy Lawrence, uh, told about a strange moment when she found herself, uh, you know, she's, a, she's an ex-Navy uh, Navy helicopter pilot, being uh, s- sitting in uh, or floating in the mirror uh, singing Beatles songs while a Russian played mm-hmm. guitar. That, uh, there must have been many moments like that for you, I would think. That just there like, wow. was, it was funny. So Talgut Musabayev was the commander of the Mir at that point in time. He's a native of Kazakhstan, but he was a, a cosmonaut in the, in, in the uh, Russian Air Force. Um, grew up during the Cold War in the Soviet Union, and and although he was from Kazakhstan, he was a part of the Soviet Union in, in the Russian Air Force. The Soviet Union Air Force became a member of the Cosmonaut Corps, and he was a big Beatles fan, and uh, he had a guitar and. He and I sang, you know, a couple of Beatles songs together. My crew told me to keep my day job. <laughs> uh, I, I think it was Hey Jude, but anyway, oh, wow. it, was, it was a lot That's of fun. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, it's you should hear him sing it with a Russian accent. <laughs> yeah. Some of the wow. interpersonal stuff was really cool. You know, the the mechanics of flying obviously are fascinating too. But when you think about the issues that Mir had, you know, they had a fire breakout. Uh, they had the collision with the progress that I've already discuss- discussed. But I went on three missions. One of them was before any of those issues. The second one was after the fire broke out and the third one was after the collision. And each time we would take components and parts and repair equipment. Um, but after, the, you know, Vasily Tsubleyev was there for both the fire and the collision with the progress. They almost lost the crew in the fire. Uh, fire was caused by a defective oxygen generator same kind of generator that um, you know you could think of it like uh, in the airlines when you you know you have a depressurization they tell you to pull on the, the mass to get it started it's a chemical reaction that tr- generates oxygen the, the one they had was defective and it caused a really bad fire 
and they almost had to bail out, but uh, they got the fire put out. The crew was exhausted. They lost a lot of of uh, systems and, and powering things down and trying to get control of it. And so uh, when we went on my second mission to help them recover from that, I asked the control centers to give us a couple of hours after docking to have a private crew meal where there was no interruptions on the radio. And we took, uh, in my crew, I had uh, Ed Liu, who was of uh, Chinese descent, Mike Fole, who was going to replace Jerry Leninger, who was of British descent, uh, Jean-Francois Clairvaux, who was French, Carlos Noriega, whose his family's from Peru, and Eileen Collins and I, and Elena Kondakova, who was a Russian cosmonaut, was flying on our crew up and down, really an international crew. And we took a meal element from each of those cultures, and we had a really great time with the crew. Kind of could see the stress melting off their faces, and at one point, Vasily pulled me over into his bunk area and pulled out um, a spacesuit glove that he had done an EVA with. Uh, and it was an EVA to try to fix things that it had, had needed attention after the fire and they were just exhausted but he took the glove and he wrote on the back of it in Russian to Charlie in fond memory of our meeting on orbit together and I still have that thing as one of my most cherished gifts of all from my time in flying in space but it turns out this same guy Vasily who did that and was also flying the Progress, uh, trying to fly the Progress when it collided. It was also in East Germany flying MiG-23s at the same time I was flying F-15s. And you just got to think about that. And it just, for me, when the, the life I grew up in, uh, it's just mind-boggling to see how things change and where life takes you, you know? Yeah. Um, thankfully, thankfully, that's the way things turned out. Yeah, for sure. Just amazing. And, uh, you know, it continues to this day. I mean, every I brought my granddaughters out to... Uh, out to the backyard a couple of weeks ago and uh, watched. They, they had never seen, they live up in Portland, Oregon, which it rains all the time, so they don't get much of a night sky view. They had never seen the uh, International Space Station go over. And I said, there's uh, there's six people up there and they're all they're all having dinner about now. Mm-hmm. So we just watched, watched them go overhead. And being able to see that, you know, now two decades in and still going strong, um, it, it's... Uh, you know, it's kind of testament to what what you guys had, you know, had had built up from uh, from from where we were, and uh, it's you know, it's nice knowing that there's more, it's more of a permanent presence in space than uh, than we could ever imagine. Yeah, you know, it's it's I talked about that evolution from Mercury to Gemini to Apollo to shuttle and space station. What we learned along the way is if we're ever going to be a species that can survive long term off the planet and live elsewhere. Even for expeditions like going to Antarctica, uh, even if it's not the, you know, what some people talk about is, is creating a, a culture that lives, is born, lives, and dies on a place like Mars, that's really way out there. But just to have expeditions of large numbers of people um, in programs like we have at McMurdo Station in Antarctica, you have to really learn how to take uh, as much of earth with you as you can and things like the human element of, of, of having the ability to enjoy a meal together to be able to get on the phone and call home and talk to your your family and friends to have communicated con- communicating assets to allow you to to feel like you haven't really left the planet otherwise you're in a, a world where your resources are so limited that your ability to perform and function is limited. And so it became really obvious as we were getting into Shuttle Mirror that we had to provide for the crew as much of life on Earth as possible out there 
in order for them to be productive, to be happy, to be able to, to live in, in a healthy way. So that's what space stations doing today. They can fly over uh, a part of the earth and they can call someone they know that lives there and they can send a photo of what they're seeing as they fly over it instantly on, uh, on social media. We didn't have any of that when we were doing Shuttle Mirror. We had to make you know, run, jump through big hoops to, to connect to the ground uh, through to the family with phone line connections and so forth. So bringing, you know, normal life out there is a part of what we're learning with Space Station. And more to come. That's, Absolutely. that's the best part. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Well, Charlie, thanks so much for being on our show. Um, you've really connected, I think, us with, you know, when you watch when you watch a movie like Apollo 13, it's, uh, it's people under stress uh, far away, but I think one of the things about this movie and what you've discussed is that the human element is so important understanding these things. I mean, we have pioneering spacecraft far out into the, into the galaxy, but you know, they're leaving, they're leaving the solar system now, but I Mm -hmm. think our closest connection is with uh, human beings out there and just being able to understand there are people experiencing space, even, even as we're talking. Absolutely. Well, again, thanks. Thanks for being on. Hopefully we can have you on uh, again soon to talk, uh, as this as the show goes on when things go wrong there's enough coming coming up in the future so if we can have you back in the future sometime that would be great you bet my pleasure all right i'm well, sorry i didn't talk much but charlie i just enjoy listening to you so <laughs> like, like guys i'm still here but i'm just kind of mesmerized by this so <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's fine I, I i was the same way i was like I, I should ask a question now but this is just too too darn fascinating <laughs> yeah, charlie was the first astronaut i ever met and you know i'll never forget uh Hang, we, were, we were hanging out in the back, waiting to you know, waiting to go on in space day, and and I just happened to catch a glimpse. I'm like, "Whoa, he's wearing an astronaut pin! How cool is that?" <laughs> you know, I vividly remember telling Tom Charpentier, "I'm like, like I, oh my god, he's wearing an astronaut pin!" You know, he's like, "Yeah, yeah." Do you remember your first astronaut, Charlie? I mean, when you walked into a room, you said, "I know that." Wow. Um, yeah. Uh... You know, being at Edwards um, Air Force Base, I had a connection to the Air Force astronauts, so I was able to meet with several of them, John Casper, Roy Bridges. You know, I didn't meet the Apollo astronauts till I joined the Corps and we had astronaut reunions. Um, but I think uh, getting to know them was one of the more inspiring uh, things, right? Because you'd only known them through the media prior to that. And, um, and then learning from them, uh, my favorite was John Young because he was still in the program when I joined, and he, he goes went back to Ge- all the way to Gemini, and so Gemini and Apollo, and then flew the first flight of the shuttle. So when Hoot Gibson and I did the docking to the Mir for the first time, we leaned on John a lot for you know talk to us about this phase of flight. What what, we, what, what were you thinking about for you know uh, getting it right when you were doing this part of the flight in Apollo? What do you have for lessons there? And spent many late nights in the simulator with John, working on on emergency procedures with engine failures during ascent and emergency reentry trajectories, and just getting to work with him was really a thrill. Oh yeah, but uh, yeah. all great people. Yeah, that wow, that's yeah, that's like learning. That's like learning from Lindbergh how to get across the Atlantic. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Uh, wow! Well, fantastic. We'll be having more episodes in the future uh, uh, talking about the, talking about different things like this. But uh, if for folks listening in, if you'd like to listen to previous episodes of our show, we're always available Apollo thirteen minute dot com, Apollo one three minute dot com. Also, find us on iTunes or Google Play. Just type in Apollo thirteen minute and hit the uh, 
subscribe button once it comes up and you get us hot and fresh every morning monday through friday if you'd like to talk back with us we're always available on the social media go to check us out on uh, twitter at apollo 13 minute or on facebook at apollo 13 minute mission control uh we'll be back tomorrow uh talking more about uh more more things going on the way to the moon uh, so join us here it looks like we're coming up on lost the signal in about 30 seconds so we will see you here tomorrow on the apollo 13 minute